As we look this morning uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be moving around a little bit this morning. We're going to have to go to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to have to go back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to bounce to a couple of books in the New Testament from all the way from 1 Peter, Revelation. Uh, and so we are going to move a little bit. And so if you uh, need to be prepared to write, we have a lot of information to cover this morning. And so I'm going to... Uh, try not to move too quickly, but I, I do need to move a little bit quickly this morning. Uh, and I would say this too, we have a lot of folks, the Lord has really been blessing our church in the last two or three months. It's been amazing to just see how God has been working. Uh, a lot of new families come in, folks that have, have you know, are folks that are maybe away at college or work in other ministries now that at one time worked here, come in and stop in for a service at times, and they're kind of blown away by uh, the new faces. And so, and that's such a blessing. Uh, and to see God moving. And so I commend you for your faithfulness and thank you for being here. But I do want to be mindful of the fact that sometimes uh, when you're new to a place or when you're new to the Bible, especially, uh, many of the folks that have been coming are pretty new. You've got some Bible knowledge, but you've really never been taught in depth a lot of things. And, and as this is given, uh, if you're not getting everything every moment that it's given, don't let that discourage you. Uh, I promise you this, the longer that you stick with it, the more it will begin to make sense and you'll begin to put things together and connect. Uh, there's, there are different stories within the Bible, but there are central underlying themes that you see from beginning to end. The series that we're in right now uh, is an attempt to kind of tap into some of those things that we see from beginning to end. And so we started uh, with the beginning of God's power displayed. God has always been and will always be powerful. You see it interwoven through every uh, passage in the scripture. You see it in every book. You see it from beginning to end. We saw about the beginning of man and how man's nature, our creation in the image of God, how all of those things have displayed to us our character uh, and that reveals to us how we were tempted. And now we're going to look at that some this morning. Uh, and so uh, today we look at the beginning of sin. We all struggle with sin. Uh, if you ever get to the place where you think that you have reached a, a position of never sinning again, uh, you're in heaven. Okay, because until we get there, that's just not going to happen. Uh, and so I, and I, I can wake up and I can drive around and I can look. And as much as I love living in our area, uh, whenever I drive up and down the road, see all the debris, see all that kind of stuff, see how people drive, uh, it's very clear to me that I'm not yet in heaven. Uh, and so uh, we have not arrived. We've got a long way to go. Uh, and uh, we live on a sin-cursed earth, and we'll see that some this morning. Uh, but the reality is, is that God is working in our hearts and lives. He wants to work in your heart. He wants to work in your life. He wants to give you and share with you a deeper and a greater understanding of himself. Uh, but when he does that, it reveals the flaws in us. And so he doesn't do that to make us feel bad. He makes us do that to realize that without him, we're nothing. And so, and he wants to make up the difference in every area of our life in which we, we are falling short. And so we look this morning in Genesis chapter number three. And I, I will say this too. If you miss the first two messages, uh, I'll try to catch you up a little bit along the way. Uh, they are kind of prerequisite in some ways to this week and the next couple of weeks. Don't let that discourage you. You'll get plenty that's fresh. Uh, but if, the, if it seems like, well, I don't really understand that. 
I can't re-preach it, but it, it might be worth your while to go back online and listen or onto the website and listen. It will help you make sense of where we're going and what we're covering now. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Bible said, Adam is created, the earth is created. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree, every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shalt it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins, and he clothed them. And I want to speak this morning, beginnings, the beginning of sin. And let's pray. Father, thank you for the time. I pray that you would help us to help me, Lord, to get everything laid out clearly. Uh, to articulate what you've given, that we might understand it, that we might make application, have understanding, that we might be drawn to our Savior, that we may realize that without the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, that we are helpless and hopeless in our sin. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you made us. Thank you that you made a way to bring us back to yourself. 
May we seize the opportunity when it's given. In Jesus' name and amen. So far in our series, we've gone and we began looking at the beginning of God's display. We saw how God created everything. Now there are two primary ways in which he created. The first, the Bible says that God made. When the Bible says in Genesis 1, and again, this is just a quick review, uh, he made from nothing. He spoke, there was nothing in existence, and so he spoke and it was. And so, in essence, it's creation ex nihilo, from nothing. It means uh, that there was nothing out there and he formed matter. And so basically what it's saying here is God created matter. And then it talks about he made, uh, for example, the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air from the water. Uh, and then he made man, uh, a cattle and beast from the dust of the ground, creeping thing. And man, of course, he formed uh, so he made and he formed, making to make from nothing, forming to taking the matter which he has made and putting it together. Now, small words, even little articles in the Bible are of extreme importance, especially when things are being established. I want you to look back just very quickly because this is a point of contention. Modern man is constantly, and I say modern going back even to the late 1800s, is constantly trying to twist the scripture to keep up with science rather than realizing that science uh, can only ever in time prove scripture. Amen. God knows everything. God created everything. And one of the ways that that's manifested is there is, a, uh, and I, I can't get too deep into this, but there are people that are theistic evolutionists. In other words, they believe that God created all the matter and then everything evolved. Whereas the, the, the uh, regular, you know, world evolutionists, the Darwinists uh, and atheists believe uh, that everything just kind of came and crept along for year after year. And so there was a period of time uh, when theories began to be developed in an, in an effort to explain how the earth uh, looked as old as it was. Now understand this morning when God created the earth, it was created with apparent age. And by that I mean when God created trees, he did not, cre he did not go out and plant all saplings. He, he, plant, he created and some of them were mature. There was fruit in the garden for them to eat from the beginning. There are some types of trees that take uh, even decades to begin to produce fruit. Uh, some will produce in a few years. Uh, but the, the earth was created with apparent age. It, it was not uh, just we it allowed to grow for uh, billions of years and then God came along and created man. Notice that he says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The word was there is the word that I want to call into question because there are some good folks and, and Bible believers that take that word was uh, and their whole format and belief of creationism is based upon that one word. In that, uh, they believe that that word, a scholar came out and probably in the early 1900s that stated uh, that that word actually means became. And it should be translated, and the earth became without form and void. If you look at the Hebrew word that's there, it literally means to become or to be. It can mean became, but it, listen, when God said it, just believe God. Amen. We have to 
look at the beginning now of sin because we have God created, then we have God formed man, breathed into the breath of life. God made it very clear what his expectations for man were, what man could do, what man couldn't do, what man's responsibilities were. God came and walked with him in the garden every day. There was sweet fellowship with God. Uh, and we don't know, uh, honestly, how long of a period of time elapsed from from God's creation of man uh, until the fall of Satan, and we don't know how long it was before the fall of man. Uh, all we know is that it was sometime before the birth uh, of Abel. And so when we look here and we see what God has done, uh, then we know that God has them in the garden. They are busy working. They have jobs. They're naming the creatures. They are taking care of the garden. They are uh, partaking of its fruit. They are enjoying its beauty. Uh, they are enjoying fellowship with God. Uh, and as they go about that, uh, then we have the, the instance of Satan in the form of a serpent interjecting himself into the story in Genesis chapter 3. And verse 1. The concept of sin is very misunderstood today. The world rejects the idea of it. They want to redefine it. It's not important how the world defines it. It's important how God defines it. And so as we uh, look this morning, we have to look at this beginning of sin. If we were to go out today and, uh, and take a survey of 100 people as to what is the definition of sin, does sin exist, what is sin, uh, you're likely to get uh, 100 different answers. Some would be similar, uh, some would be very dramatically different, uh, but there would be a, a, a very different uh, information that would be gathered. Man seeks to define or to dismiss sin as a significant issue today. Man doesn't want to accept that, hey, this is more, this is meaningful and powerful in life. Uh, they just want to write it off. As a, as a culture, as a society, that's our nature to do because we don't want to be responsible. But in truth, sin has eternal ramifications. Sin has impacted not just our souls, but the entirety of creation. The reason that bees sting and snakes bite and wasps sing and uh, I got my hand in some uh, fire ants last week and uh, I was I was I had about eight or ten fire ant bites on my hand last Sunday morning. They were just driving me crazy while I was uh, sitting through the service and uh, listening to the evangelist preach and it just uh, that wasn't the way that God created it. Uh, the rose didn't have thorns. Uh, we had a lemon tree in our backyard that we planted a few years ago when the freeze last year killed it, but I haven't cut it down yet. And still sometimes when I go, uh, when I go walk by that thing pushing the lawnmower, if, I, I, if I'm not paying attention, the thorns on that thing will, uh, will gouge my arm pretty good. Uh, God didn't create things that way. You realize that when God created, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no uh, dysentery, there was no COVID-19, there was no flu, there were no allergies, everything was pristine and perfect. That's what God created. It is not God's fault as the world looks, why would God uh, create this? God didn't create this mess. Man made this mess. God created it in perfection. God created it in holiness. God created it to, uh, to give him comfort and joy and and to serve his purpose, and then sin corrupted it. So what is sin? The Bible tells us, and I'm going to give you just a couple of brief definitions, and so I'm going to move through this quickly. In Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, uh, you see how the impact, uh, and we'll probably come back to this again before the end of the message, but, uh, but you see the impact of the sin in the garden upon us today. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. The word sin there, 
there, and the Greek word is uh, hamartia, uh, and it means this. It means to be without a share in. So when we talk about sin, God created us to share in the garden, his work, his person. He made us to share in his power and his love and his joy. And whenever we sin, it means that we are without a share in. That was removed. It means, secondly, to miss the mark. That is the most common definition that you would be given, say, in a Sunday school setting as a child growing up, as that concept of sin uh, is taught and revealed. It's simply to, uh, to miss the mark, to uh, fail to measure up. It means to err, and it means to miss or to wander from the path of uprightness. And so, I say, but pastor, we're talking about in Genesis. This is the Greek equivalent in the New Testament uh, that we see uh, that points back to Genesis chapter 4. Actually, is the first time the word sin is used in the Bible. Uh, and so, though they are sinning here in Genesis chapter 3. And so, it means simply that we have failed to measure up or to live to God's standard or to God's expectations. And we'll cover that again in just a moment. And the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. And so, if you're still there in Genesis 3, you can turn over a page or so and get to verse number 7 of chapter 4. And Cain and Abel are here and they're bringing an offering. Uh, and it's pretty clear from the backstory here uh, that you understand that somewhere along the line, they have been taught by God uh, the consequence of their sin. And, the, and they understood that this was, that why there was a problem with their sacrifice. Cain did not come and offer a, an unacceptable sacrifice out of ignorance. He came and he did so out of pride. Uh, and so that's why it was rejected. And we don't have time to run to Hebrews 11 and look at that more closely. Uh, but, but jot it down. You can study that part out on your own. Uh, the word, first time the word sin appears in the Bible, however, is in relation to them making a sacrifice uh, to pay for their sin. If thou doest well, uh, thou shalt shalt thou not be accepted, God says to Cain. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And so uh, there's sin entered into the picture. The word there in Hebrew is chadua, and it means this. Just a twofold definition here. Number one, it is an offense and its penalty. And so it couples offense with penalty that brings together, I've committed an offense, there is a penalty associated with that offense. He explained that in the text that we read this morning in Genesis chapter 3 uh, of all the things that happened to the earth. Secondly, it also means it has to do with sacrifice. So it carries the idea of all the way through, there's, there is offense, there is punishment, there is a sacrifice that needs to be made. And so that is the first part of the definition of the Hebrew word. The second part is condition of sin, guilt, or punishment. So when I sin, I feel guilt. When I sin, I feel shame. We see that brought to light in Genesis chapter 3 uh, in their life. Simply stated, sin is this. It is offending God by failing to live up to his expectation for his creation. Our offense is caused by our sinful nature, which was passed to us from Adam, our father, as we saw in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Now, it's critical that we understand this morning, and we can't, I don't have time to preach it all, uh, but you, you've been taught uh, at Christmas time, and we'll cover it then, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why is that important? Because a, a sin nature is passed from the father. Uh, my wife did not pass our children their sinful nature. I'm responsible for that. That was my fault. 
And so it is the natural order of what God has laid out. Adam blamed Eve, but it's Adam that passed the sin nature on uh, to mankind. And so in order for Jesus to be a worthy sacrifice for our sin, he could not have a sinful nature. He had to be born without a sinful nature, born without sin. Because he was virgin born, a supernatural act of God, a miracle, just like the miracle of creation. I don't understand why it's so difficult for us to understand that if I accept the miracle of creation by faith, then I also need to accept the miracle of the virgin birth by faith. Uh, it is necessary uh, to fulfill what God stated and to reconcile mankind uh, to God. Uh, and so uh, we were created in his image, that trichotomy. He is Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We are body, soul, and spirit. But the spirit dies here in Genesis chapter 3. The spirit is the thing that dies when he states this. And so we're going to look this morning at the origin of sin. And so if you look here in chapter 3 and verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord's God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. We're going to take just a moment here. Our first point is going to deal exclusively with the fall of Satan. Satan is the originator of sin. And I cannot understand what God or where sin came from if I don't understand how uh, it came about. So when did this happen? That's one of the big theological questions. When did Satan fall? We don't know. Some people want to say that he fell between uh, sometime before the creation recorded like Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2 the earth was, was without form and void saying that it means that it became. They would argue that Satan fell sometime uh, millions of years ago and destroyed the earth and that's why it's without form and void. No. God created matter and then God organized matter. And so we covered that. God uh, created life and then he gave the laws that govern life. Uh, Satan fell at some point after Adam and Eve and after creation. Listen, if Satan had been created and fallen back then, then God would not have been able to say at the end of creation that everything was very good. If Satan had fallen, everything clearly would not have been very good. And so if I believe that God can't lie, I have to accept the fact that God said it's very good. Satan's still in heaven, still a cherub. And some point after Adam and Eve are working and fellowshipping with God and loving God and enjoying God and experiencing God, the fall of Satan happens. And so we're going to look uh, biblically here at where he came from. And so we're going to hold our place here. And I'm going to ask you to go with me to Ezekiel chapter number 28. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses here. So if it's a struggle for you to find it, just listen closely. Uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, number 28. And the context here is that God is talking to his prophet Ezekiel. And he has sent his prophet Ezekiel uh, to, the, to the place of the kingdom of Tyre uh, to send rebuke and to deal directly with the king of Tyre, uh, Tyrus. And he is, he is talking to him. But it's very clear from the language here that he goes beyond just talking to a man is addressing Satan himself. Uh, I don't know what the conditions are. Perhaps Satan had uh, possessed this man, I, but that's just speculation on my part. Uh, it's just that God wants us to understand some things here. So in Ezekiel chapter 28 and beginning in verse number 12, 
The Bible says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, talking about uh, Satan here, uh, and thou hast been in Eden. How do you know it's talking about, uh, about Satan and not this king that he's addressing directly because that king had never been in Eden. Satan had been in Eden. And so he's full of beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle of gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. That's a very important phrase. He's talking to Satan, the cherub, Satan, Lucifer, the angel uh, in heaven. And he says here uh, that, <clears throat> uh, that thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walkest up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Iniquity is not an accidental sin. Is it an intentional act of rebellion uh, against what's been stated? Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, and thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee, and that all they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee, and thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. You'll never again be restored to your position. He was a cherub. What does that mean? A cherub is an angel that was in the throne room of God that used his wings to cover the throne, to cover God. He was face to face with God. And so we're going to kind of look through this very quickly this morning. Uh, and he says, first of all, in verses 12, 13, and 17 here in this chapter, he was perfect in beauty. He's given us a description. Satan is not the wretched, disfigured thing that you see around Halloween or in cartoons or on the can of, uh, of uh, devil's food, whatever. He is beautiful. He was the most beautiful of all that God created. He was perfect in beauty. It says in verses 12 and 17, he was perfect in wisdom. He knew knowledge. Remember, wisdom is not just having knowledge, but it's knowing how to use it correctly. He is a master. He is, has wisdom. It says in, uh, in verse 14 that he was exalted in position. God gave him an exalted position. He was in the throne room uh, with God. It says that uh, in verses 13 and 14 that he was privileged. And it states that he was, uh, in this privilege, the cherub that covereth, in verses 13 and 14. In other words, that covereth, to unfold the wings and to spread them about God's throne. And he says here how he uh, had, was covered in all these beautiful precious stones, these jewels. And how they shine so brightly. Uh, and so they, uh, as they put it out there, he was blessed 
with an unusual talent in verse number 13. There are some that would argue that he was actually a third archangel like Michael and Gabriel and that he was in charge of worship. Uh, and this is one of the passages that's used to prove that. The Bible doesn't state that emphatically, uh, but it's certainly a possibility. And so he was a tremendous musician. And so we look and we see uh, that he's blessed with unusual talent. And then in Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll have to leave here and run there just for a moment as we make our way back to Genesis in Isaiah chapter number 14 uh, and beginning in verse 12. Now instead of talking to the king of Tyre, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Uh, and he is uh, again referencing more than just the man. He is transcending that uh, to Satan when he says, How art thou fallen from heaven? In verse 12, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. In other words, he says, I am going to ascend to the throne of God. He saw his own beauty. He saw his own wisdom. He saw his own privilege. Uh, he, uh, he looked at the shiny sparkle on his wings as he covered the throne of God. And he said, I'm so bright and I am so magnificent that I can become God. But he forgot. As commentator Arthur Pink put it so eloquently, that when the lights went out, there was no sparkle in the gym. Come on. That without God, he was nothing. And no matter how good we may be, no matter how articulate we may become, no matter how powerful we think we are or important or prominent, without God, we are nothing. Amen. His greatness led to pride and selfish ambition. That pride and selfish ambition introduced sin, iniquity into all of eternity and creation. He forgot, but God reminded him. God's blessings became Satan's curse. Listen, my friend, be careful this morning that the blessings of God in your life don't become your curse. Don't get lifted up in self-righteousness. Don't get lifted up in pride. Don't get lifted up in arrogance because God has blessed you, because God has given you wisdom, because God has given you intelligence, because God uh, has given you prominence. Uh, he is God and it's his. Pride is the original sin. And that's one of the, why God hates it so emphatically. How do we know God hates it in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16? These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. A proud look is number one. He hates pride. We see in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse number 13. Uh, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. In chapter 14, in uh, verse number 3, uh, as he lays out, he says, In the mouth of the foolish is the rod of pride, but the lips of the wise uh, shall preserve them. In chapter 16, uh, in verse number 18, he says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Chapter 29 uh, of Proverbs, in verse uh, number 23, uh, he lays out and says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Pride is that original sin. That's the fall of Satan. 
And when Satan fell, he finds himself now coming to the garden back in Genesis chapter 3 and interjecting and introducing temptation and sin, the questioning of God to an unsuspecting Eve. And so we've seen first sin's origin, now we look at sin's operational distinctives. The fall of man. Let me back up just for a minute, letter B in point one, the fall of man. God's expectations were made clear in Genesis chapter 2. When it's time to go back through all of them, he said, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do, and I'm going to be here to walk with you every day. God made it very clear. They had perfect understanding. Secondly, not only were God's expectations made clear, but man's response missed the mark of God's command, and an offense against God's character was made. Now we see the beginning of that here as we see sin's operational distinctives. Number one, we see, or letter A, the deceptive power of sin. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He deceived her. He says, yea, hath God said. He doesn't say, hey, God's all wrong. He just calls into question. It's the same tactics that he used whenever he tempted Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you uh, look at uh, the temptation here, he says, don't you see that this tree, and it says that she saw that the tree was good for food. He made an appeal to her body or to her flesh. And then uh, he says that she saw that it was pleasant uh, to the eyes. It was an appeal to our natural desires or to our soul. Then he uh, reveals to her and continues to tempt. And he says, hey, if you eat this, you'll be wise. You'll be like God. You'll be just like God. And she saw that it was wise. He made an appeal to the intelligence or to the spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 tell us that all of that kind of wisdom and knowledge and the things that are made clear to us come only from God and His Spirit working in us. We don't have time to go to that passage this morning, but jot down that in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Satan worked the same way whenever he worked with, Satan, with Jesus. He misquoted scripture and he says, turn these stones into bread. He was appealing to Jesus' body after 40 days of fasting. He, in, in a lack of sleep, cast thyself down. He's appealing to the soul. The angels will come and meet your needs. He said, bow down and worship me. He's appealing to the spirit. The same tactics that Satan used with Eve and Adam in the garden, he used with Jesus whenever he, the spirit led him to be tempted. He doesn't change. He is what he is. And he deceived. Sin's power is deceptive. Why? Because he says, and it makes sense. Did God really mean that? God didn't really mean that. You won't surely die. And I've got a hasten this morning, uh, but you can go back and reread the text here. He said, you're not really going to die. So she takes the food and she eats it. And lo and behold, she's still breathing. Apparently, she didn't die. Apparently, sin's not such a big deal. Apparently, the cost isn't so great. But she didn't realize that the spirit in her died. That that part that fellowshiped and communed with God died. That the part that will live in eternity with God forever along with her soul died. And then Adam came. And he chose Eve over God. He had a decision to make. You ate that? You're giving that to me to eat? I can just hear him now. Woman, what were you thinking? <laughs> now he's got to make a choice. She was deceived. Adam rebelled. Adam said, I want my her. I want you more than I want him. 
Well, Pastor, wouldn't you have chosen the same thing? It's hard to say the flesh is strong and Eve was beautiful. But God could have created another woman. Amen. Now, if we stand in judgment of Adam, I wasn't there. But we're still paying the price. And we will until God sets everything in order. It's powerful. It's deceptive. He wants us to think it's not a big deal. What does Adam do? He shifts blame. Immediately, God comes. She gave it to me. Not, don't look at me. It's not my fault. I want you to consider not only the deceptive power of sin, but the disruptive power of sin. What did power disrupt? First, it interrupted their, their innocence. In chapter 3 and verse number 7, and the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. They sewed fig leaves together. That's important. Made themselves aprons. Why is that important? Because they were trying to cover their sin on their own. You can't cover your sin. I can't cover my sin. Only God can cover our sin. Only the sacrifice can cover the sin. Sacrifice of Jesus. Innocence was disrupted. Secondly, we see that fellowship was disrupted. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They before would run out and meet God. I love whenever my grandchildren at my house, my oldest son's three children, uh, because my, my grandson, who's the youngest of the three, he's got two older sisters, and they're five and three in about 18 months. And, uh, and so uh, whenever Pops comes home, it's all call me Pops. Whenever Pops comes home, uh, if he's awake, he's leaving whoever he's with and he's making his way at full speed to the front door. And it doesn't matter how much stuff I'm trying to carry in, I got to put it down so I can pick him up. <laughs> he's excited that Pops is home. Even the other day, my, uh, the, the second girl, Brooklyn, she, uh, she heard me. He was taking a nap, and she was around the corner, and she heard the door, and she came. Pops is home, and she ran down and jumped up in my arms and gave me a big hug. It was awesome. I'd enjoy it while it lasts before they outgrow it. It's the way Adam and Eve used to greet God. They used to look forward to God's visits. They looked forward to spending time with him in the garden. Now they're hiding from him. Sin disrupted their fellowship with God. Instead of seeking God, commentator Arthur Pink puts it this way, instead of seeking God and openly confessing their guilt, they attempted to conceal it both from him and from themselves. Don't miss that part, from themselves. Conscious that something is wrong with him, Adam, he seeks shelter behind his own self-righteousness and he trusts in his own good works more than he trusts in God. The counterbalance, and he trusts in his good works to counterbalance his evil works. Church going, religious exercises, attention to ordinances, philanthropy and altruism or the unselfish concern for others are the fig leaves which many are weaving into aprons to cover their own spiritual shame. They hid themselves. Man's conscience did not bring him to God, my friends. 
The world says, oh, your conscience will bring you to God. Your conscience will convict you. No, uh, your conscience will not bring you to God. Uh, conscience here, uh, let them know that they were in shame. It let them know that they were wrong. That caused them to feel guilt. It caused them to hide. It caused them to try to solve their own problem when their problem could not be solved by self. And it caused them to try to minimize what they had done. And so, but it did not solve the problem. They hid themselves. Their conscience did not bring them to God. For, their, that, for that, there must be the working of the Holy Spirit. The perfection of creation was disrupted. Creation was perfect. We talked about that already. I'm going to move on. But it was disrupted. The disruptive power of sin. Thirdly, we see the destructive power of sin. It deceives, it disrupts, and it destructs. Sin destroyed man's position. It destroyed twofold. It destroyed Satan's position as a cherub. Satan no longer is a beautiful cherub. He's now an outcast and banished from heaven forever. It destroyed Satan's position. And it destroyed Adam's position in God. And it destroyed you and my position in God. That death that was promised, that spiritual death that happened instantaneously, instantaneously at the moment of their sin destroyed uh, their life and their eternal place with God. And sin destroyed their peace. What does disease do? What does sin do? What does anger do? What is it takes away peace. It robs your joy. Now I'm going to comment just a, a moment here before we move on to our final point this morning. In verses 8 through 12, we, or let's back up to verse number 8. Uh, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. When God sought out Adam and brought him face to face, again, uh, this is Mr. Pink writing, brought him face to face with his guilt, he was given full and fair opportunity to confess his sin. Instead of brokenhearted confession, he excused himself. What do we do? What's our nature to do? What is our natural response? It's excuse. Listen, we've raised and trained at least, if not more, at least three generations of young people that firmly and fully believe that whatever wrong they do is not that big of a deal so long as they have an excuse. Excuses don't matter to God. An excuse might get us out of trouble with a, with a, a lazy parent. Amen. Excuses might get us out of trouble with a manipulative politician or judge. Mm -hmm. But an excuse will not be accepted by God. Amen. I sinned. The only solution to my problem is confession. Amen. The only solution is sacrifice. The only solution is a solution of blood. Not my blood. The blood of the Lamb of God. Amen. We come and we understand uh, that he works and destroys and uh, tries to break down everything about it. The effects of the fall of man are fourfold. The effects of the fall are the discovery that something's wrong with me. When I realize that I've sinned, I come to recognize, hey... I'm in the wrong. There's something between me and God. I have done uh, wrong. Secondly, it's the effort to hide ourselves uh, with self-provided covering. A good attitude, a good work, a good deed. It's the sowing of those fig leaves to try to cover our own shame. And we cannot cover them. 
Notice in chapter 3 and verse 21, they, God rebuked them for sighing the, the fig leaves. And he, and he said unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? From the very beginning, from the moment that sin entered the garden, from the moment that man was confronted in his sin, God shed blood. Amen. The innocent had to die to cover the shame and the sin of the guilty. It is a picture of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. From the very beginning, God's grace is at work and God is working in their lives and, uh, and developing and showing them what must be done. And we see uh, that sin destroyed that position and he took away from them uh, their peace. Listen, I would say this morning in verses 8 through 12 as it lays out as he tries to shift the blame to Eve and, uh, and Eve tries to shift the blame to the serpent that they weren't willing to take responsibility for what they had done. Attempts are being made to palliate, or to palliate sin, or, or meaning uh, to, uh, to lessen or to disguise the seriousness of it. We constantly are trying to minimize the seriousness of sin. Amen. We rename it and call it a disease. Listen, I understand that there are sin that we can commit that will change the chemical makeup of our body that needs to be medically treated, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm in that condition because of sin. No one is an alcoholic today or directed to drugs today because they were born in that condition. They're that way because they chose to abuse something and it affected them. And yes, it needs to be addressed medically, but the issue is not a disease, it's sin. And that's what they do in the Garden of Eden. They're trying to minimize the power and the destruction of their sin. And Mr. Pink says that shifting the responsibility to others. And when we come to the place where we can own our sin, we can begin to make some headway with God. When I begin to stop, when I quit blaming others for my sin, I can get victory from bitterness. I can get victory from an angry spirit. I can get victory from all the things that defeat me, that crush me in life. It begins with saying, God, I have sinned. David said uh, when he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, he said, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. He's not saying I didn't commit wrong to them. He's saying, God, I have offended you. It's nobody else's fault but mine. It's not hers for being on the rooftop. It's not his for not going down to his house when I brought him back to Jerusalem. It's me. Thirdly, we see not only sin's beginning and sin's disruptive power, but we see sin is then overcome by the eternal work or atoning work of Christ. I'm going to leave you this morning, I'm not going to leave you hanging this morning with we're here in this sinful condition. What do we do? Well, we see, first of all, that the work of the coming Messiah was a promised work. And it wasn't just promised by Moses uh, whenever he got to the tabernacle and God, when he uh, made the promises there, it was promised right here from the beginning. I want you to see in verse number 15 in chapter 3, and I, God says, will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt shall bruise his heel. Again, the wording is so important. Why? Because biblically speaking, the woman does not have seed. This is the first prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. God is saying 
It is not a man that is going to bruise your heel. It is the Son of God that is going to bruise your head. And you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to suffer on a cross. But he's going to rise victorious from death and hell and he's going to crush you. Amen. Sin will be crushed. It is a promised work. God comes to them and God deals with their sin and God confronts them and God pronounces judgment and God says this is what has to be done and then he clothes them and he sacrifices for them and he promises them that there is coming a Messiah that will reconcile you fully back to me and reinstate what you've ruined here at creation. It was a promised work. Secondly, we see it's a powerful work. More powerful than creation itself is the redemption and the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why he didn't just wipe the earth clean and start again, I'll never know. But thank God he didn't. 1 Peter chapter number 3 and verse 18, For Christ also, also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. It's a powerful work. It was a work that allowed God to come and supernaturally raise up a virgin girl to deliver a sinless natured uh, man who could then be 100% God while yet 100% man and he could walk in sinless perfection among us and he could display the power of God and he could take upon himself our sin and he could hang on a cross and become our sin that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him that the justice of God would be satisfied and would be uh, fulfilled so that in his love he gave himself for you and I. God could not compromise his character. God could not compromise his position and God could not compromise his love. He had to satisfy it all to restore mankind to himself. And so he became our sin. He walked amongst us and he rose victorious from the grave so that he could give to you and I eternal life. So that when God looks at Jesus, uh, he sees his perfect holy son. And when God looks at you and me, rather than seeing us standing there, hiding behind our own fig leaves of good works, he looks and he sees the sacrifice of his own son and the skin of the, of the innocent that he said for us. Amen. Sin, the promised work, the powerful work, and it was a permanent work. My friends, this morning you don't get saved over and over again. You get born again. You get born one time into God's family and you become his child. And when you sin after that, it ruins your fellowship with him and he'll come down and give you a good spanking like parents ought to give to their children. Amen. Well, we don't believe in spanking our children. Well, then you know more than God does. God said to spank them. Matter of fact, if you don't, God said you hate them. But the world says, who cares what the world says? Do things God's way. It'll turn out all right. Amen. We look and we understand what God is saying. It is a permanent work. He did not die one time and have to die again and again and again. Don't believe those, uh, those religious circles that say uh, that that sacrament becomes the body of Christ and that that juice becomes a, uh, the blood of Christ because Jesus is not perpetually suffering for your sin. He died one time. And God was satisfied. Amen. And we look and we see in Hebrews chapter 9 and 
in verse uh, number 12 uh, that he lays that out neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us I'm glad that what he gave me wasn't temporary it wasn't permanent and I can no more depend upon myself to keep myself saved than I can depend upon myself to get myself saved my fig lives, leaves mean nothing they are a disgrace and a shame to God but the righteousness of Jesus Christ satisfies God in heaven for all of eternity and the blood applied to you and to me makes us the son of God his blood flows through our spiritual veins and nothing can ever change that Amen. not because we're good but because he's God Amen. consider this morning that sin ruined God's perfect creation that sin is passed upon all men by our father Adam but there's a second Adam and his name is Jesus. And he defeated sin. And God makes everything new. And Pastor, everything's just so bad. My life's such a wreck. Sin has ravaged my life. It's broken my family. It leaves me feeling hopeless and helpless. May I say to you this morning that the Apostle Paul, who deems himself to be of the most vile and corrupt of all men to ever be saved by the blood of Christ, a man who persecuted the church, a man that who dissolved families, imprisoned them, committed murder in the name of, uh, of what he thought was serving God, a man that Jesus Christ met personally on a road to Damascus and saved, a man whose life was transformed, wrote to us, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away and all things are become new. That your destroyed, wrecked, ravaged life can be made new by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He'll make your soul new in an instant. And then he'll get busy working on the rest of you. Will we surrender ourselves to him? And by the way, when it comes to creation, he's not done with that either. In Revelation chapter 21, in verses 1 through 6, and we'll be done this morning. He said, and I saw a new heaven, John writes, and a, uh, and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death and neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. My friends, we fell, we stumbled, we were deceived, and we chose to rebel in our pride against God because it was our nature that Adam gave us. And God had to respond in holiness and righteousness and he had to respond and say, because you've disobeyed me and because you've done this and because you're hiding behind your own works, I have to make it clear to you that there's nothing that you can do about this. But I love you. In spite of your rejection of me, I love you. And I'm going to do what's necessary to make it possible 
for you to come back to me. But God, are you going to just sweep it under the rug? Are you just going to be altruistic with it and make it not that important? No. I'm perfect and I'm righteous and I'm holy. And you cannot be in my presence and you cannot be a part of me if you're not also. Well, then I better get busy. No, it won't work. Your, your fig leaves mean nothing to me. Let me take the innocent and let me shed its blood and cover you. And we, my friends, this morning are covered if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior with the blood of the one who was an acceptable sacrifice to make final payment for our sin. That God's righteousness and God's holiness and God's justice were never sacrificed. They were never compromised. They were completely fulfilled. But so was his love to us made manifest. And that he, Jesus, loves so much that he became that sin and paid that price that if we would come to him and say, Lord, I am hopeless and I am helpless and I'm on my way to hell because I have a sinful nature and because I'm not your child and that's what I deserve, but I know that you love me and I know you gave yourself for me and I come to you this morning and I'm sorry that I've sinned against you and I recognize that I can do nothing and no amount of good works will ever get me to heaven, but I also realize that you are my covering. You have paid the debt for me you have made it possible for me to be born into the family of God. You've made it possible for the spirit that is in me that died in the Garden of Eden to be made alive again within my heart uh, that I might stand before God as a son and not as a stranger. I am no longer an alien, but a son of the Lord God. What a blessing. Amen. My friend, sin is powerful. Sin has destroyed this earth. Sin has brought disease. Sin will destroy your life. It will wreck your family. It will take your joy. It will suffocate you. But it doesn't have to. Because Jesus made it possible for you to become a son, to live in his favor, to live in his power, to live under his blessing. If you'll just recognize God, it's not their fault. It's not Satan's fault. It's not the world's fault. I sinned. I owe, but I can't pay. You want to pay it for me? No, I couldn't let you do that. Really, you want to pay it for me? Oh, but okay. And when we accept the gift and our sin is paid and we are born into his family, we are his forever child.